Hello, friends. I'm Ashish Darbari, founder and CEO of Axiomize. To our new listeners, welcome to our old ones. Welcome back. Today, I've got a real treat for you. We are closing um, the end of the year. We are already in December, and I have managed to persuade a very busy man to give me some time to talk about security. Yes, friends, we have today in-house Jason Oberg. If I may say Dr. Jason Oberg, because he's actually a PhD, and it's uh, it's going to be a great chat today. So welcome, Jason. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks, Ashish, for having me. Oh, no, it's great. So Jason, uh, my friends, uh, is now a CTO at Tortuga Logic, but he's actually a founder and former CEO of Tortuga Logic. So Tortuga has a new CEO now, and Jason has moved back to the CTO role. So exciting times, Jason, hey? Yep, yep. So, hey, um, before we talk about the fascinating things you guys are doing, um, I would like you to share a bit on your journey, where you were born, how did you get into science and engineering, and how exactly did you end up doing cybersecurity? Yeah, no, so it's a, a, you know, it's an interesting background, right? Interesting story. And, and getting into cybersecurity was kind of an accident. But to kind of start at the, at the beginning, um, I was uh, actually born and raised in Hawaii. Um, so my, my parents were, uh, were big surfers. So they, uh, they, <laughs> they, they moved there uh, when they were uh, a lot younger. Um, and, uh, you know, went to, went to college at, um, you know, undergraduate in uh, UC Santa Barbara, University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, following that, um, I had met my PhD advisor there as well as um, my, uh, uh, I would say, co-advisor. Um, who are, end up both being founders of Tortuga Logic. This is uh, Tim Sherwood, who's still at UC Santa Barbara, and Ryan Kastner, who's still at, who's now at UC San Diego. Um, and following that, following graduating, I actually Ryan persuaded me to go do a PhD with him. Um, and so I joined Ryan down there at UCSD and really got involved in security there by um, somewhat by accident because, you know. For, for folks that have gone through a PhD program, you basically work on problems that are academically interesting that have really no uh, necessarily any commercial viability or even a clear path. It's more of just this is a hard problem. Mm-hmm. And we saw, you know, we just saw this kind of gap in the way that security is being addressed in hardware and really looking at ways of building security foundationally into systems. And so I really got, you know, involved in this space somewhat by accident just because it was an interesting topic um, and it had a really interesting intersection of my background um, from undergraduate which was a lot more on embedded systems and and um, hardware design and then you know into intersecting that into security um, so really kind of like I said got jumped into it by accident and mm. then you know coming into the the company it was really you know as we started doing the research in the space we started seeing a lot more hardware vulnerabilities popping up uh, we started seeing uh, a lot more industry interest. Some of the large semiconductor companies were forming security initiatives. Um, you know, Intel, for example, was forming a, a centralized security team. Uh, they were funding a lot of research, um, and so we, you know, we saw it as a good opportunity to uh, to start the company. And so this was around uh, 2014 or so when I, you know, defended my dissertation and, and we uh, went on our journey. So this is fantastic. I, I mean. To be born in Hawaii and actually think about getting a PhD 
uh, you know, I've never been to Hawaii, but I can only think of beaches and nice weather in Hawaii, right? So <laughs> to actually move out of that and then get into computer science, then all the way to a PhD. But actually, what I find quite interesting is that soon after PhD, you started this company and you didn't even go and work anywhere and built a very successful uh, company. So great stuff. Uh, great stuff. So I remember meeting you many years ago in a DAC. Um, I think you had a booth um, and I was with a colleague and I think I used to work at Imagination Technologies in those days. And I remember meeting you and another uh, colleague of yours and you had built a little app at the time uh, where you could load designs and do some analysis. And now we are talking in 2020. So I think it was six, seven years ago, I think it was. So a lot has happened in this six years, especially in cybersecurity, which is quite a big area, really. Um, but let's focus on three different aspects of it, hardware, software, and systems. So I believe what you're doing right now is addressing the hardware security problem. Am I right in thinking that? Or are you also going yeah. to software territory? No, that's, I mean, that's, that's correct. I think I'd caveat that, though, with, Security in general is a system level problem. Mm -hmm. And so there's a general concept of, of composability and security. And, and basically, you know, being able to, if you secure two pieces of your system and stitch them together, security doesn't compose that way. So you actually don't, you can't assume that, you know, the hardware was, was secure by itself, the software was secure by itself, then you stick it together and now your system is secure. That's not really how it works. Right. And so, um, so yes, our solutions are really focusing on a lot of the core hardware vulnerabilities, but an exploit at the hardware level actually is a, can cause a system level compromise. And we've seen that for a whole variety of, of hardware vulnerabilities. And I think that's an important point because uh, what we're enabling is basically allowing uh, our customers to consider hardware as part of the security analysis mm -hmm. rather than abstracting that away from the analysis, which is what is typically done. No, that's great. So I, I'm exactly... A firm believer in that mindset as well. Um, so we will dive a little bit more deep into the different aspects of security, but I just want to take a step back and ask you, so when Meltdown and Spectre became big news in or January 2018, I think the papers were already there a few months earlier. Do you believe that Meltdown and Spectre was a good thing for the whole community as such because it has now raised the levels of awareness and have you personally seen a positive side of it in terms of being able to have a much easier discussion with the hardware designers, et cetera, and architects about security, whereas previously you would have to like sound like an insurance agent, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's actually kind of funny because when we formed the company, we saw this, this wave coming. But, you know, as a security company, what you always want to show is, you know, the first deck is, the first slide in your presentation is here's all these hardware vulnerabilities and right. then, you know, going into to how we address them and so on. And a lot of the hardware vulnerabilities when we formed the company were, were a lot more academic. So there was stuff going on that, and actually the, the root, the, the core of the meltdown inspector attacks were these cache timing side channels and those types of attacks have been around for, for years. So the, the, the specifics of that aspect were not, um, were not new to anybody. But I think what really started happening probably around 2015 and then, and then it's been accelerating pretty aggressively. And actually, if you look at the national vulnerability database, there's been a, about an exponential increase in, um, hardware vulnerabilities in the last several years. And so as time went on, we started seeing more and more of these hardware vulnerabilities and then Meltdown Inspector came 
in uh, early 2018, at least the, the public disclosure, I think it was in January. And that was, that was a really big eye-opener, right? So, I mean, it really, because it affects large application processors, it, it, it typically, it only affected um, companies that are using those types of processors. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously Intel, AMD, ARM, and then a lot of the licensees of ARM. Yeah. And then there's certain companies that have their own custom architectures. But really, that was a big awareness builder that, um, that people saw that, hey, an actual hardware vulnerability can be remotely exploited. And I think that was a big eye-opener for some of the impact that these things can have. And this caused all sorts of chaos in the industry. There's, you know, reorganizations within companies, um, tons of patches. I mean, I saw, you know, stories of servers, you know, not booting and, and um, you know, huge performance degradation, all this stuff, right? And so being able to proactively avoid that is super important. Yeah, I, I think of that as the COVID-19 moment affecting <laughs> yeah. the humanity right now. And I think these events are actually big game changers in the history of uh, science. I think uh, they make us think about what we are doing. I'm I'm totally agree with you. I think these side channel attacks have been happening for a while, but we just didn't know about them. And and it's exactly like how so many infections are there out there, but we don't actually know until they become bigger in magnitude. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we take Mm -hmm. notice. So Jason, how do we go about um, educating ourselves about security? So there is the side channel issue, then there's the hardware root of trust. What is Tortuga's vision? How do you look at the security uh, prism, as it were? What kind of problems do you think are covered or even worth covering, even if you're not covering them now in a solution space? What should in, what should we be looking out for in terms of hardware security? Let's say. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think the way that we 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 think of the landscape is is there's kind of two sides to this. There's um, what I'll call things that are logical and architectural. So things that you can um, that are maybe it's a bug in an RTL, maybe it's a misconfiguration of firmware, um, you know, things that are more in the actual architecture design. And then there's things on the um, on the physical side. So this could be like fault injection, um, things like uh, physical side channels, measuring power consumption and so on. And so there's this spectrum and there's some things that sit in the middle, like external debug and these kind of things. Um, and actually a really good resource for this um, is uh, MITRE's. So MITRE, MITRE is an organization uh, funded by the Department of Homeland Security here in the U.S. Um, and they maintain a common weakness enumeration database. So this is basically a database of common weaknesses, and they just extended that for hardware in February I see. Of, uh, of this year. Yeah, and they've had several releases since. And so so that's a really good resource to see where that spectrum is. Uh, um, but, you know, take, to take that a, a point a bit further, I mean, I think the way to look at some of these problems is that some are really low business impact and some are very high business impact. And the things that are going to be the highest business impact are ones that are, are remotely exploitable and that um, once you find one exploit, you can carry it across a bunch of different devices, right? And the things that are least business impact are physical access and one-off, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so attacks kind of sit in that spectrum. Meltdown Inspector is very much in the, the high business impact, but maybe if you you know buy one chip and you you shoot a laser at it and you flip a bit, but then you have to do that over and over and over and it was a million dollar process, then it's, you know, it's lower business impact. It might be of concern to certain folks within the defense sector, 
but less so from a you know a commercial like an IoT chipset or Correct. something like Correct. that because just no one's gonna have the resources to do that. Great. So, so this is a very interesting way of looking at it, right? So this is like an impact spectrum, and which which area of the spectrum you are depends on what extent of damage could be caused by whom and with what ease and with what initial cost. Um, I think in the software context, these things are much better understood historically uh, from the days of viruses to now malware and Trojans. So let's do a deep dive in the root of trust issue. So what is the mm -hmm. hardware root of trust problem then? What exactly are we looking out for? And is it something that could be solved? Yeah, no, absolutely. And so <clears throat> kind of going back to the, the growth and hardware vulnerabilities, part of the contributions of that are actually related to more security features being driven into hardware because typically it was a fully configurable you know, device. A lot of security features were added at higher levels of abstraction. And so a lot of there's a big drive to actually root a lot more of those security features into hardware. And that's where this whole hardware root of trust initiative has come from. And, mm -hmm. and it's kind of an open-ended term. Um, sometimes people mean an actual separate IP core that has its own microcontroller and encryption accelerators and key storage and, 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 you know, side channel resistance and these kind of things. Uh, some people actually view it as more of a, what I'll call a trusted execution environment, leveraging things like ARM trust zone, mm -hmm. but really the core core of the, the meat of it is that it's a, it's a way of anchoring and booting your system securely. So, mm -hmm. you know, you authenticate your boot image, you decrypt it, you load it in so that you can make sure that there's there's a foundational security when your system is brought up. But fundamentally to that, the, the issue is that because systems are so complicated and because now the hardware is responsible for so much foundational aspects of security of the system, mm -hmm. we see a lot of uh, mistakes that are made. And then also just the complexity of it makes it very easy to, to miss something, mm -hmm. right? So less about a design error, it's just that during the threat modeling process, something was missed. And if you break that, uh, then you can actually completely subvert, you know, the uh, uh, the whole system, right? And we've we've seen this in a lot of different areas, and it's um, it's where a lot of companies are very are very concerned, right? Because now they're responsible if, if that's broken. Mm -hmm. um, the semiconductor company specifically, they're building the hardware and actually the whole mm -hmm. software stack, mm -hmm. um, and so they're uh, th that's a big opportunity for. Uh, um, for attackers to focus on, and we see that um, a lot more in the recent recent years. Yeah, so I mean, I think it all depends on what is the end um, end place for that particular chip. I mean, if it's going to end up in a car, and if this car is going to be manufactured in big volumes, then uh, one compromise could actually expose. And where exactly does the responsibility lie? I mean, the IP provider who's making the actual processor and its subsystem is that the the stakeholder or the person who's integrating it in the ECUs or the firmware guys? I mean, where does the responsibility lie, and how how is this problem even solved today? Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. I mean, that's something that uh, um, you know is is is. What we often find is that typically people point point the finger at each other in terms of who's responsible, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think what's been happening and a trend that is is growing here is that you know historically the semiconductor companies would say this is or anybody building silicon would say this is not my problem, right? right. 
And I think that's actually changing pretty dramatically. They're, they're taking a lot more responsibility. They see it as a competitive differentiator. They see it as a way of enabling, um, you know, uh, uh, just better market positioning and how their products are viewed and used and deployed. Um, this problem becomes a lot more challenging and very fragmented, uh, I would say vertical markets like automotive where you have a chipset pitting into an ECU into mm-hmm. like, you know, a subsystem and then, and it's getting handed off to different parties along that mm-hmm. you know, different companies and stakeholders across that, that, um, that process. Um, and so, and that goes back to my whole point I brought up earlier about composability of security and how that they, they, it's not composable. Mm-hmm. And so I think what's been happening is that the semiconductor companies are, are being required to own, um, more of this. And, um, and, and I think that trend is going to continue. And actually just an aside, you know, Xilinx on their website, you know, we do a lot of work with Xilinx. They're, they have a really, really good security team. And on their website, they have a really good chart about where that responsibility lies, lies uh-huh. to say, this is Xilinx's responsibility, this is shared, and this is yours. And I really like that that kind of breakdown. Um, and I think that kind of transparency, because you, you're never going to be able to get access to the run the whole system. That's right. Being transparent with, here's what we'll do, customer. Here's what we'll do together, and here's what you need to do, mm-hmm. allows the communication to be a lot more transparent and allows you to actually build a lot more secure system. So, um, right. but in general, it's hard to say the responsibility is with this specific person. I think what is happening though is that there's becoming more responsibility into the semiconductor. Yeah, companies. and I think with all these third party IP, because nobody is actually making the whole stack of IP to the full system, not even a company like Apple, right? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Where does the trust lie and um, how do you make sure that, as you said, you know, the whole system composed as one? Um, and I think a lot of this is also validation issue. I think you were hinting at, did we even know that we were meant to build or test um, these different scenarios? And I think a lot of it is in that space, because if we know that these were the requirements, good ones, the bad ones, the the, the attackers are going to be able to do this, so we need to check then verification is only the second problem, right? But validation is a much bigger problem with security, not knowing. Hey, but what is the side channel issue? Can you give me like a two-minute primer on the side channel attacks? But I have something more interesting to talk to you about, but I want don't want to miss this chance. Yeah, sure. No, so so side channel, um, to just define it in general, is a way of learning information indirectly from the behavior of the system. Right. And so this can happen in many forms. This could be from... Uh, physical, like actual power consumption. So you right. can, you can mm-hmm. clip onto a power line and actually measure the power consumption. Um, people have, uh, me- you know, there's a lot of um, measuring EM, like with an EM probe, electromagnetic radiation from a chip. Um, there's actually thermal. And then side channels can take actually various forms. There's a lot of, there's a, uh, there's attacks that I've seen, um, you know, uh, we, um, one of our, our partners is a riskier and they're telling me this story where, there was an attack where you can actually, they, they measured the audio of someone putting an actual key, like a physical key into a lock. And because of the pins and as they drop, they can measure the audio and then completely recreate the actual key, wow. the physical like locking key. And it, you know, that's another form of side channel. So it's a way of actually learning information indirectly. Um, in the case of Meltdown Inspector, uh, the side channel was really around uh, execution time variations due to the actual CPU cache. And so 
If you if data is in the cache, it's a fast access. If data is slow or not in the cache, it's a slow access. And that timing difference can actually tell you some information about what's going on. Uh -huh. um, and so that was another form of, of actual side channel mm -hmm. um, for the system. And so they can take many, many forms. Um, it doesn't have to just be you know, physical mm -hmm. or digital. So, so let's look at this. So from what I understand, you're offering a simulation and an emulation-based uh, verification solution. And does it mean that it covers root of trust, side channel, and all kinds of security issues? Are you covering every problem under the hood for hardware? Is that right? That all, all problems are covered? Not, not currently. So I would say that we're, we're covering, when I was talking about the spectrum of, of mm. highest business, highest impact Thanks. and yeah. um, lowest business impact. Yeah. You know, we obviously, you know, we're, you know, we're a commercial focused company, uh, sure. trying to solve the hardest problems and the ones that are of highest importance. And so we, hi we cover a lot more of the highest business impact ones. These are things like meltdown inspector, mm -hmm. uh, things related to, um, misconfigurations of roots of trust, um, things more on the logical architectural side that can be remotely exploited. There's obviously a spectrum of more physical attacks, or not, I wouldn't say physical, but things that require physical access, like external debug. Right, right. Um, mm -hmm. And so on. One of the things that we are, so we do cover all that now with our Radix uh, products, which, as you said, plug into the, the simulation and emulation environments from um, our partners, Cadence, Synopsis, and Mentor. Uh -huh. And um, But we are expanding also into more of the physical domain, right? So like I said, there's right. a spectrum mm -hmm. there. Yep. And so we are doing some work that is moving more towards into that domain, but there's um, it's still preliminary at this point. So in I noticed that you have solutions for um, hardware renders who are building ARM processors, and I think you've also done some work for Arc architecture. Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea on? And you can you can be diplomatic and not give me a straight answer. I'll be happy with that. But, you know, we have the ARM, and then we have the x86, and, okay, you have the ARC, and RISC-V, which is now going to take over the world, right? Uh, so, in terms of these different processor architectures, do you have any insights on which architectures lend themselves to be more vulnerable or more secure? Mm -hmm. uh, any any yeah. thoughts on that? Yes, I think... The one thing I'd say is that, you know, obviously those are instruction set architectures, right? So they're really around, um, they're less around how they're implemented. That's right. right. And I really think, I really think a lot of the security issues, um, are less in the actual architecture. They're more around implementation, right? So, so Meltdown Inspector are a good example because you can build, you can build a processor that has an x86 processor and an ARM processor that has no caching and no speculation. It'll, be terrible in terms of performance. That's right. But it won't be vulnerable to those. That's right. Those exploits. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's less about the architecture, more of the implementation. Um, but but that said, I think you know if you look at it at some of the IP vendors, um, their whole business model is to deliver kind of shrink wrapped IP that is configurable, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think by nature, there's a lot more. Um, uh, I guess I'd say you know. Possibly. There's a lot more organized structure around how that's delivered because if you're buying an actual physical piece of silicon, you don't care about the internals and how yeah. how it was built. But if you're actually building your own system, you know your own SOC, and you're going to license something from from Synopsis with Arc or from from ARM, um, there's going to be a lot of 
well-defined um, interfaces around that processor core, right? And I think that, so so that may lend itself a bit, and this is the same with RISC-V, where obviously you're going to get a RISC-V core, mm-hmm. um, but it's hard to make a general statement about that. I yeah, would but, say but that, what I was thinking of, like ARM um, Trust Zone, right, is, is something that has been developed with security in mind um, that has enabled a lot of, um, you know, like playing through the phone and other such things. So some architectures certainly did make an overt um, attempt, let's say, whether successful or not is a separate question, because um, nothing is absolutely secure, right? So I think that was what was making me think that some architectures think about security from an architectural point of view, um, and what combinations of instructions can be executed and how and um, where would the secure zone be and which actors would have. I think RISC-V also has a spent a lot of time thinking these things through and in the privileged architecture there's a lot of discussion about this which is great stuff but um okay you mentioned xilinx so what are you up to with xilinx do you mind um sharing uh spilling some beans <laughs> so yeah you... no, so we uh, we actually have a a lot more resources on the work we've done we have a, a webinar on our website that folks can can check out um but you know we did a lot of work with them um you know, with our Radix products on the root of trust, right? So obviously I mentioned them already about how how they have a really good security strategy in terms of how they're um, focusing on, uh, uh, you know, this really good transparency with the customers, what they're responsible and so on. And obviously one of the things they are responsible for, and I'm not saying anything that's, you know, it's, it's on their website, you can go see this, um, is that, you know, they're responsible for all aspects of the actual device. So how the part boots, you know, how it's loading the customer's bitstream, how it's encrypting the bitstream, authenticating it, all this stuff, right? And so because of that, they're obviously very concerned that they get all that right because it's, they, they are acknowledging that it's their responsibility. And so really, uh, they've been using our, our Radix products for a lot of those different use cases. And the ones that, that you know, that I can talk about are, you know, related to, for example, managing a lot of their, their key material during... Um, uh, during the whole boot process, right, which is very foundational to the security of the system. Uh, they're also using our Radix products for um, a lot of system interconnect issues because as the part boots, certain parts of the system need to get a- have access control turned on, other ones have to get it turned off, and that's a very distributed problem across the SOC, right. and so uh, that's another good use case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, it's it's all the aspects that, that you know, they, they say we're responsible for this, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and they're really leveraging Radix for a lot of those problems. I see. So do you have any insight on whether customers tend to prefer more the simulation side or the emulation side? I mean, is it like 50-50 in terms of how your products are deployed or is it more like 70-30 and where 70 would be for simulation? Yeah, so it, it's... They're, um, it, it's, a, it's a process, right? So what typically happens is at a... At a um, some will create a set of security objectives and our whole process works with starting with, you know, high level, you know, business requirements, like we're responsible for this, mm-hmm. mapping that into security policies, like something that's a little more specific, you know, writing our security rules for Radix. And then what will happen is some of those will get run in simulation. So maybe you run at a, a block level, like the root of trust, or maybe even a subsystem of the root of trust in simulation during the normal regressions, you can deploy Radix. And then as the system gets built out and as actually more software is running on it, just just like there's a transition between simulation and emulation um, and functional verification because of capacity issues and so on, that's when they'll transition over to, to emulation uh, using Radix M. And there's obviously a lot of huge value there uh, for running Radix M because you can actually get 
you know, that whole system security analysis, right? Where I you know, said before, really, the more you can execute on the whole system, the, high, the more secure, the higher your security assurance is going to be. And so I would say there, it's hard to say which is used more, right? I would say that just in general, simulations are run a lot more frequently, like simulation, you know, regressions, there's a lot more parallel simulations going on than batched emulation runs. Uh, but we, we are very much kind of aligned with the typical flow of, of how our customers are doing. That's the whole, that's the whole key value is that we're really layered into what they're already, the customers are already doing so that they're not doing something extra, right? I, I mean, I semiconductor companies are all time to market, right? Correct. Get our silicon done, get it out, but, but they right. don't, and, but they don't want to compromise security. And so we've layered ourselves across the app. So whatever the verification strategy and planning is for the customer. So what would be the biggest chip that you think your product is used on in terms of gate count, WAP count, any, any yes. anything you remember? It's hard or? to give an exact number. I would say, but I mean, we scale directly with what the emulators will, okay. uh, will handle. So okay. if, if a customer has, you know, we introduced, we introduced some, some very, um, you know, Delta and overhead. Um, and it's very much dependent on what security properties they're looking at. But, but in general, I mean, if, if they're running a, a very significantly large design and emulation, we will also be able to run that same design because we're basically just layering on top of it. So if there is a customer uh, who's building semiconductor designs and they want to get in touch with you, what is the process? How, do, how can they actually leverage your solutions? What is the flow? In terms of how they, uh, yeah. is this a, so if they come sales to you, or sales or deployment question. Yeah. So if they, yeah, if they come to you, what kind of things would you need to know to be able to help them? Yeah. So, so the typical process we take, you know, when engaging a customer and what they need to know. So one, um, you know, everything starts with this whole threat modeling process, and and this this is important because depending on what the customer is doing, they're going to care about certain security issues versus others, right? And I mentioned this with sure. the, the lower business impact ones. Some actually really do care about those, but others might not. And so it's really good to gauge where where the customer is there. Um, and then we, we offer, um, you know, we typically offer trainings and, and, and support, obviously, early on to say, you know, we have a good security team um, in addition to our security applications um, team that will come in and say, you know, Based on your requirements, here's here's what we recommend for for security rules. Um, we often have those exchanges with the, our customer security teams, um, and so we kind of do that up front, and we do that kind of at the system architecture level, and then we'll often uh, you know obviously support them in deploying Radix and getting this installed and deployed in sure. the verification environment. Very you know very standard. You know our customers are used to that, um, and then we also offer training on actually how you execute Radix and so on. But we'll take those security properties we came up with uh, during that initial process with the um, with the security teams, help map those into actually executing on Radix, um, and then um, you know at the output we say you know this passed or this failed, and then we have some unique analysis used for them to resolve the problem. So that's kind of the typical process we take. Um, this would take a few weeks to turn it around and actually get to a point where you can say we can go and deploy Radix S or N or a combination. So. Yeah, in terms of our kind of a, um, our typical process, it's about one month, right? I so, see. and, okay. and mm -hmm. this is taken various forms. Sometimes our team is, is more involved. Sometimes our customers have a lot of sophistication. They will be, uh, they will be happy to, you know, have a first, like they have a security team. They know what they want to do. Sure. We'll have a first conversation and support them. Otherwise, other customers are not, not mm -hmm. at that level and we are more involved in it. So there's a spectrum, but, but typically these are about, you know, one month type of uh, projects. 
So, hey, I didn't realize it's already half an hour talking to you, and I know you're quite busy. So let me wrap up the chat today, but I need to carry on this conversation with you another day because um, I want to come back and ask you why you're not using formal for security. But we'll, we'll come back to it in a second. But tell me, if a listener today uh, listening to our chat wanted to take away five tips and is a young you know, college graduate um, like you and I were at some point, you know, I think you're still young, but not graduates anymore. If they wanted to take um, some tips on how to get a career started in hardware, cybersecurity, what would be your tips? What should they do? What kind of courses they should take? What kind of things they should build and projects? You know, anything that an expert like you would advise? Yeah, no, so that's, that's a good question. I think what's, what has been happening, um, so certain... Um, universities actually are having hardware security courses. So I think, um, you know, obviously leveraging those if you're in, in such a, a university. I think in general, you know, really understanding um, it, it's, you know, they're kind of two unique fields. So I think if you really want to get in, in, uh, involved in hardware security, taking classes, you know, that are hardware design related, you know, Verilog, you know, VHDL, verification environments, such and such things. And, um, and then conventional cybersecurity topics, because the cybersecurity topics, even if you're looking at computer security at, at a network level or, or what have you, the concepts are the same. Mm -hmm. And so getting that general background, then you really will you'll learn how to connect the general cybersecurity concepts to hardware because you'll have that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so for someone that, you know, is going to go to graduate school and study this, um, really taking hardware courses and then ha also learning a bit about general cybersecurity concepts you know, different, you know, different types of encryption to mm -hmm. different types of protocols, uh, you know, different types of uh, security properties, like confidentiality and integrity, these kind of things. Um, that'll be a really good way to, to kind of get that good balance. But where will they get these courses? I mean, not all universities actually teach security in that manner, right? I mean, and I think most, I think most do. I mean, I think now, I mean, because cybersecurity is such a big uh, topic, I think most universities will have a undergraduate course on computer security mm. as part of a computer science program or right. computer engineering. It, it is very unlikely to include anything hardware related, but the, the, the general concept, like I said, will be, will be right. the same. So, I mean, I, yeah, UC Santa Barbara, where I went, there was an undergraduate course on computer security also at, um, UC San Diego. And so I would, I would imagine that other universities have similar. Cool. Okay. So what you're saying is, Stick to the principles of hardware design and architecture and get the most out of uh, conventional security courses, even if they're focused on software. That would be a good way to start. Excellent. Hey, thank you very much for your time today. Um, I think we will come back to you again uh, because there's a lot more ground to cover. But I appreciate that you took time out to come and talk to us. Thank you very much, Jason. No, thanks for having me. It was great. Hey, friends, I hope you liked today's chat. Do let us know. Get in touch with us at info at axomize.com. Get in touch with Jason and Tortuga if you're, if you're interested in what Tortuga is doing with security. I hope you guys stay safe, and we will be back soon. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.